As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus uh, reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, uh, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is uh, new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, uh, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you uh, that you've given us your word, and uh, how often it uh, just brings light into our hearts, into our life. It speaks comfort to us. It challenges us. And so we ask for your spirit now um, to come and bring to bear uh, the words and actions of Jesus onto our lives, and that you would call us to repentance and to faith, that we would rest in his unfailing love, and that we would indeed uh, follow Christ. And um, I pray for those who are here um, uh, that uh, have not begun to follow Christ, um, that uh, his words in this passage would be a call to them. And I pray for those who have uh, um, accepted Christ and are following Christ, that you would uh, call us uh, continually to repentance, to follow you, to know that our life is not our own, um, but that we belong body and soul uh, to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so would your spirit attend to us, speak to us through this word, and um, we ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So uh, about two years ago, uh, in this church, uh, my mom, uh, on a Sunday after a sermon, uh, came forward and, uh, with tears pouring down her eyes, uh, took communion for the first time. Uh, she was 69 years old, and, uh, which was a mar- remarkable thing. It was a remarkable thing for me. I'm a pastor, and you know, I'd been a Christian for a long time. My mom was uh, becoming a Christian. She had accepted Christ. But uh, one of the amazing things was also that um, this came after um, probably 15 years of uh, dialogue. Uh, she'd heard the gospel many times. We'd, she, we'd had, I don't know, hundreds of hours about, of, of conversation about the, uh, about the Bible, about Jesus and who he was. And yet, on that morning, something changed. Something happened in her, and obviously hit her in a very uh, deep core of who she was and her identity and her sense of who God was and what her life was about, because obviously it was very emotional. And she came forward and she said, I I believe, I want to follow Christ. What happened to her on that morning that was different than 15 years of warm conversation uh, about who Jesus is and what the Bible says? What changed in her? Well, what happened was uh, 
what she experienced uh, two years ago was what we call an, the effectual call of God on her life. The effectual call. And what I mean by effectual is uh, that God, Jesus was calling her to himself in a way that it actually had the effect. Um, she was compelled. She was uh, drawn to Christ. And um, one of the things I want to talk about this morning is that that uh, experience, that transformation, that sense of that Jesus is calling me is something that has to happen in every, in every Christian's life to truly be a Christian, is to have a sense that Jesus has called me. Now, this can happen in a very young person's life. This can happen in a child's life. You know, uh, Jesus says, let the little children come to me. And, and I've met many people who have said, you know, I, I, I don't really even remember a day in my life that I've not loved Jesus and had a sense that he has called me to follow him. Um, but uh, it is something that the sense of call is something that you are aware of and you are conscious has happened to you that Jesus has called me to himself. And what that means is that our relationship with Jesus is not simply an intellectual thing, where I, there are certain things that I'm supposed to believe, and I, I have agreed intellectually that I believe those things. That's not what an effectual call is. It's also not just a cultural thing. That, you know, I grew up in the church, I grew up uh, in a Christian family, and this is what my family do, does. We go to church and we do things. Uh, it's not just a part of my cultural life. And nor is it just a part of my social life, that I have Christian friends, and I have Christian friends, and, you know, uh, that will often happen. I've talked to people who say, I know people who are Christians, and um, it seems like there's something happening in them, in them that hasn't happened in me. It is something that we are aware of, that God um, is, ha, Jesus has called me to follow him. And so... Um, this effectual call is really uh, the topic of uh, this passage I just read, because what you see is you, we just read about the call of Matthew the tax collector. This is the Matthew who wrote this gospel, who followed Jesus, and he actually became a, uh, uh, became a biblical author later on. And Jesus says, follow me, and he rose and he followed him. Um, but also, you see this reference to, the, to this call in verse 13, where Jesus says, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And that this is a big part of what the Christian life is, is that Jesus is bidding people to follow him, to leave off an old life and to follow him. And so I think for many people, there is a lot of mystery about the call of Jesus. Has it happened in my life? Well, it is a mysterious thing, I, I'll say that. But that's um, whether, you, uh, um, whether you're not a Christian and you're wondering, you know, okay, I'm interested in Christianity. I'm interested in Jesus. What needs to happen? What's the, you know, what me, what's the transition that happens from me not being a Christian to me being a Christian? But it's also a big question that uh, if you've grown up in the church, there's a question of has this happened to me? Am I, you know, have I responded to the call of Christ? Am I really a believer? And so this morning I want to give um, kind of an overview and ex an explanation about what this passage has to say about the effectual call of God on a person's life. And in particular, I want to point out three things from this passage that it says about this call. That first, Jesus' call is irresistible. Jesus' call is irresistible. Second, Jesus' call is to repentance and faith. Jesus' call is to repentance and faith. And third, Jesus' call is only for sinners. You can only hear the call, you can only be called if you are a sinner. Okay? So those are the three things. Jesus' call is irresistible. 
It's a call to repentance and faith, and it is only for sinners. So first, Jesus' call is irresistible. And you see that, you see that sense in Matthew. You know, this happens in a number of places in the gospel where in verse 9 it says, And Jesus passed on from there, and he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And what happens? And he rose and followed him. <laughs> There's, he didn't seem to think about it. He just did it, right? You know, and um, there was something so compelling, so attractive, so you know, we don't know what happened. But when Jesus said, follow me, he obeyed. And um, what that means, um, there, uh, he was compelled. He couldn't say no to Jesus. When Jesus said, follow me, he couldn't say no. He was drawn. He was compelled. He had to do it. And um, the Holy Spirit had done something in his heart that made him say, I, I want to follow this man. I wanna, I'm going to leave my job. I'm going to leave my vocation, and I'm going to go and spend, spend my life with him. Something radical in his heart had to have happened for that to happen. Now, I, I, you know, I know that's true. I experienced that in my own life where, um, you know, for all of my life, in my teenage years, become, before becoming a Christian, I was a staunch atheist. I thought Christians were absolutely foolish and uh, they were emotional, lost people who were not thinking and they weren't taking the world seriously and they had these fairy tale ideas about God. And, and on top of that, I'd never really read a book in my life. I'd read one book by the time I was 17. Then all of a sudden, someone shared the gospel with me. And all of a sudden, I became a voracious reader of the Bible. And, uh, and I believed everything in it. I said, I believe in Jesus. There's no question in me. This is true. And this is what I need for my life. And all of a sudden you say, what happened? How, does that, how can you be a staunch atheist? And then all of a sudden you just say, yeah, of course I believe in Jesus. And I'm sharing what I'm reading in the Bible with everyone that I'm meeting. How does that happen? Something has to happen in your, in your heart. A transformation, the effectual call of God, where Jesus told me to follow him. And, and I did. Because I believed he was who he said he was. And um, now... This doesn't mean that the effectual call on someone's life is always a dramatic thing. You know, Matthew's conversion here is very dramatic. My, my story is a dramatic conversion. It doesn't happen. You know, some people um, do deliberate about what the Bible says. They want to ask a lot of questions. They want to understand what they're getting into, and, and they want to read the Bible and really think about what it says. And, and of course, um, that's, a, that's a good thing. But one of the things that's important to understand is that Christianity, life with God, following Jesus, is not about accepting a philosophy. It's not like, here's a philosophy about this world, and you think through it and rationalize, is this a philosophy that I'm willing to accept? And then if you accept the philosophy, you're a Christian. That's not what the effectual call is. Christianity is a person. Christianity is about a person, Jesus Christ, who bids us to leave off our old life and to follow him. And so we're not, it's not ultimately a process of rationalizing and coming to an intellectual conclusion to say, this is, this is a philosophy that I, I believe makes sense of the world. That's a good process. It's true, it is a philosophy. It does make sense of the world. But ultimately, if, if I think it's about rationalizing, that leaves me in control. Does Jesus meet my intellectual demands? I am the master that is evaluating him, and Jesus will not have us on those terms. He bids us to follow him, and he's the one in control. And we need to leave off. It will always be a plunge. It will always be a, a, um, a step of faith and risk because it's a relationship. And relationships always involve risk. You are always out of control in, any, in a human relationship, but also in a relationship with God. And that's what it is. It's always a plunge. 
And, um, and, but when Jesus calls us um, to this plunge, it is irresistible because he is irresistible. And uh, C.S. Lewis uh, became a, a Christian in his uh, early 30s. And in his autobiography, he's got a great chapter in the end of his autobiography called Checkmate. You know, and he's been, there's an earlier chapter called Check where God is, is hunting him down. And, and in the last chapter where he converts, is called che- Checkmate. And uh, he has a number of um, uh, places where he describes this call on his life. And I I just want to read a few of those to you. Um, This is what he says. I say, I chose. Right? He's talking about this this decision to believe in God and, and to trust in God to have faith. I say, I chose. Yet it did not really seem possible to do the opposite. Hear what he's saying? It's it was irresistible. I was drawn. I was compelled. There was no saying no. On the other hand, I was aware of no motives. You could argue that I was not a free agent, but I am more inclined to think that this came nearer to being a perfectly free act than most I have ever done. So when he was drawn to Christ, the thing that was drawing him, even though he couldn't have said no to it, he actually felt more free. And that's actually what the Bible says, is that when we're in sin, in our life where I own my own life, it says when we're in sin, we're actually slaves. And when we serve Christ and obey him, we become free. And that's what he says, is I felt free. Even though I was compelled, I was free. And this is what he says. Even if my own philosophy were true, how could the initiative lie on my side? My own analogy, as now first perceived, suggested the opposite. And he had this analogy about um, what would it be like for Hamlet to get to know Shakespeare? And this is what he says. If Shakespeare and Hamlet could ever meet, it must be Shakespeare's doing. Hamlet could initiate nothing. Just like if Hamlet wanted to meet Shakespeare, it would have to be that Shakespeare wrote himself into the story. If we want to meet God, God has to write himself into our story. And then this is the last one he says. Amiable agnostics will talk cheerfully about man's search for God. To me, as I then was, they might as well have talked about the mouse's search for the cat. Okay? Um, He says, God was like a cat coming after him, calling him, bidding him. And that's what we see with, with Matthew. It's, it wasn't a deliberation. He was commanded by Jesus to come, and he came. And of course, Jesus was beautiful and was attractive, and he wanted to come. So part of the question, then, that goes with this is, is everyone called? Is everyone called? And that's a delicate question. I'm, I'm not going to go as in-depth into it as you might like in, uh, in this sermon, but let me just say that the answer is yes and no. Yes and no, everyone is called. Okay, Yes, everyone is called in the sense that there is an external call that God gives to the world. So God says to everyone, you know, everyone comes, uh, God sends his uh, disciples out into the world and he says, announce to the whole world that God's kingdom is here. And to everyone who's a sinner, everyone who's lived, uh, you know, shut God out of their life, God is saying, come There is a free offer of pardon to all people. You can have all your sins forgiven and you can come and be reconciled to God and and have God as your father and be his child. It is an open offer to all people to come. You are welcome. And the call then is to all people. This is the external call. And that is open um, to all people. But if we are going to respond to that call, if we're going to hear that and say, wow, God's inviting me to have all my sins forgiven and to come and be brought into his life, something has to change in my heart. Because up to that point, by nature, we don't want God in our life. We say, stay out of my life. 
And so something has to transform inside of us. Um, and um, where um, our, lo- our, our minds need to be enlightened and we need to understand and, and it needs to be compelling to us that Jesus died for me. Jesus is calling me to be his disciple. There is nothing else ultimately worth living for. That is a work that the Holy Spirit has to do in us. Okay? Um, and there's not... The Holy Spirit is God. He does that work in whom he will and when he will. And we don't even know when he's going to do that. We can't control when he's going to do that. We can't control when he's going to do it in my life. I can't control when he's going to do it in other people's lives. He is a sovereign one. And you hear this tension of the two calls in John chapter 6. This is what Jesus says. All that the Father gives me will come to me. All the people that that the Father has given to Jesus will come to him. He is irresistible. They they will follow him. They, They will be compelled. But, he says, and... Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So Jesus at the same time says, all people are welcome. Anyone who wants to come is totally welcome, and and I I will never close the door on them. So if you want to come, it is an open offer to all people to come. There is this tension of both of those things. Um, And I think this is an important thing for us to recognize as we share our faith. You know, as we go out into Bellingham and into our workplaces and our neighbors and our families and we're sharing our faith with people, one of the things that often happens is Christians, Christians say, you know, I have the truth. This person needs to believe in Jesus if they're going to be saved. And so we try to kind of wrestle them into believing. And they're like, why don't you get this? Just believe it, you know? And, and we argue them and then they get really... They say, wow, you're obnoxious. I'm kind of done with this conversation. And they're, and they're turned away. And what's often happening when we're sharing our faith like that is we think that our intellectual arguing is going to convince them to follow Jesus. But if we know the only way they can follow Jesus is if they're called by God. Jesus has to bid them. Then the best thing we can do is we can pray for them. We can pray for God to bring his calling for the Holy Spirit to work in their life. And we wait for that call. And we tell them, listen, I, I can't make you into a Christian. I can't force you into being a Christian. God has to work in your life. And actually, to believe in this frees us from being jerks to people, right? And being obnoxious Christians who are, who are um, trying to, uh, you know, condemn everyone that doesn't see it the way we do. You know, we look at people and say, you can't see it the way I do unless God's Spirit works in you. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to share with you the faith. But, um, but I'm not going to try to argue you into the kingdom of God and in, into following Jesus. And um, let me just say, uh, let me see, let me see where I am here. Um, I do want to say that uh, for those of you, um, hold on a second, I'm kind of lost, wait a second, Um, Jesus says you, uh, so, okay, let let me say this, because I know that for some of you, uh, as I said at the beginning, some of you are either, maybe you're not a Christian, you want to say, what has to happen? You know, what does it look like for me to come, come into God's kingdom? What do I need to do if Jesus is calling me? Or if, you, uh, if you've been in the church your whole life and you're wondering, has this transformation, have I really personally responded to Jesus? What needs to happen? That kind of question. If you're wrestling with that question, this is the second point that I want to see from this passage, is that first of all, it is Jesus that bids us to, to come to him. So his call is irresistible. But second, Jesus' call is to repentance. So what do I do? What if I sense Jesus is calling me? He does want me to follow him. He is bidding me to follow him. Then how do I respond to it? What do I do? And the answer is Jesus' call is to repentance and faith. 
there's two sides to it, repentance and faith. So repentance means that there is something, there's an old life that we are turning away from. So, so to follow Jesus' call, you have to leave something behind. But also, faith is you're being called to something. Now, next week, I'm doing a whole sermon on faith. So I'm going to leave that. I'm going to talk specifically about repentance. Our, call, our response to Jesus' call is, uh, is repentance. It is a turning away for an, from an old life. And I'll tell you what happens. One of the senses that, that you can have that the Holy Spirit is working in your heart um, to draw you to Christ is that part of that enlightening that happens internally is you begin to see how broken your life is. You begin to see that um, you have tried uh, to take control of your own life and you don't know how to manage your own life. You don't know how to love God. You don't know how to love other people. And you need to be rescued um, and you can't live life on your own, and that you've been chasing after all kinds of things that you thought would give satisfaction to your life, and they've failed you. And so you're seeing a sense that your life is broken, and that you're trapped in all kinds of temptations and desires. You have all kinds of temptations and desires that are coming out of your heart that no one else knows about, and you can't stop them. You can't tell them no. Once you're beginning to see those kinds of things, you say, wow, I, I, I don't know how to manage my own life. Um, then you're prepared to repent and say, there is a kind of life, a way of living my life that I need to turn away from. And I, need, uh, uh, there, I don't know how to manage my own life. Now, this is uh, true. We, we think this is kind of obvious for someone like Matthew, who's a tax collector. So tax collectors were despised. I mean, and they were kind of shady uh, people in the first century, right? So, you know, they, they, they work for the Roman Empire. Um, they use their power to, to get money from people. They probably uh, paid a bribe to get that job, and they make a lot of money, and uh, they hang out with all kinds of people that are kind of immoral. And so, you know, most of us, we say, yeah, Matthew, you need to repent. You have an old life that if you're going to follow Jesus, you need to let go of it. And, and, you know, that was true for people like me. I, you know, I'm running around 15 eating mushrooms and stealing beer and, you know, dropping out of school. And you say, yeah, you're, you're, you've got problems. You need to, you, you're living a destructive life. And it's kind of obvious that, I need to re- that someone like me or someone like pa- Matthew needs to repent. But I'll tell you what's interesting is that Jesus consistently says it is not just the obviously immoral people who need to repent and turn away from their old life. It's not just immoral people, not just drop out punk kids like me. But everyone, it's also the moral, religious, church-going people who need to repent. And you see this, look at verse, uh, verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days are coming when the bridegroom is uh, taken away from them, and then uh, they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. This is actually kind of a notoriously difficult passage uh, to interpret. Um, but at the very least, what Jesus is saying is that he is the new wine. And uh, these people who have come to him, both the, the followers of John, say, you know, we live this really rigorous 
religious life. We fast. And, and the, we fast and the Pharisees fast. And somehow Jesus says, listen, if you pour me the new wine into you, you're going to burst. You're going to burst. You moral, religious, church-going people cannot have me in you. Something needs to change in you. You need to repent, not just of your immoral life, but of your moral life. Because you have been doing all these good things thinking that if you do all these good deeds, then God's going to love you. And if you do enough good deeds, if you go to church enough, if you say the right words enough, you stay, keep, your, keep your hands clean enough, stay out of trouble, then God will love you. And Jesus says, it's not just Matthew the tax collector who needs to repent, it's the Pharisees and the churchgoers and the religious people who also need to repent. Because they also own their own lives. And they haven't submitted to Jesus. And Jesus does this radical call to the moral and the immoral and instead calls all of them to repentance, to come and to trust in him. All of them. It is, um, it is to both. Um, and let me just say this uh, about repentance. There's a lot we could say. I mean, it's a whole sermon. could talk about what repentance is. But one of the things about repentance is understanding that there is no area of my life that is untouched by sin. There's no area of my life, there's no area of my life where I can say, you know, this is mine. I'm going to follow Jesus, I'm going to believe a lot of things, I'm going to to try to be kind to my neighbor as much as I can, but this area of my life, he has no say over it. Repentance is a total turning of of my life and say, there there is no part, not my work, not my family, not my relationships, okay, not my hobbies, not my recreation, not my my sexual life, um, nothing, my work, how I handle my money, everything, he has say over everything. There is nothing that is off limits to God. And so the beginning of the Christian life is to say, okay, how, okay, if Jesus is calling me, what do I do? What is he asking of me? Jesus, I sense that Jesus is bidding me. He is calling us to repentance and to say, I've tried to own every area of my life and I don't know how to manage my own life. So I'm, I am giving you lordship over every area. Now, does that mean we're going to live a perfect life in all those areas? Absolutely not. And that leads actually uh, to the last point that we see about Jesus' call is not just that Jesus' call is irresistible, not just that uh, Jesus' call is to repentance and faith, but last, Jesus' call is only for sinners. Jesus only calls sinners to himself. Now, one of the biggest obstacles uh, that the Bible says that we have to following Christ is that what we, our nature is, is that when we become a Christian and we enter into a religious community, is we want to think that what Jesus is doing is he's making a club of good people. He's making a club where the good people come together. Now actually, just imagine that. Imagine Christchurch Bellingham, the mission of Christchurch Bellingham is we want to make a society, a group, an organization of good people. That's what we want to do. That's our mission. Now, actually, on the surface, you'd hear that. That, that sounds kind of noble, right? We're, we're, we're people who are going to love each other. We're going to stay out of bad stuff. We're going to have healthy lives. We're a society of good people, right? That sounds, that sounds noble. But let's just try it out. What happens if you do that? Let's say what our church is about is about being a society of good people. Well, let me ask you this. In the society of good people, the club, you know, the organization for good people... Um, would you be able to be honest about your life and let people know who you really are? Because all of us have 
serious problems. All of us have things in our lives that if this community knew about, it would ruin our reputation. All of us have things in our lives that if everyone here knew about it, it would ruin our reputation. So what that means is if this is the organization for good people, I better put on a mask, I better put on a performance that shows everyone that I fit into the organization of good people. So I'm going to hide. So am I going to be myself? Are people actually going to know who I am? Absolutely not. What about this? How am I going to view other people? Let's say we're an organization for good people. How am I going to view other people? Well, I need to feel like I'm a good person. So one of the best ways for me to feel like a good person is to spot out the flaws in other people and inflate them and, and uh, make them bigger than they are and say, well, you know, at least that person is struggling with that. I saw them get angry and, um, or, uh, you know, I, I know that they're having marriage problems or something like that. And so I can grow that and say, at least I'm better than that person. So what it does, organization for good people, I can't be myself, but it also makes me condescending and looking down on other people and, and exaggerating the sins of other people while minimizing the sin, my, own, my own flaws, okay? Um, also, what happens in the organization for good people uh, when someone shows up whose sins are very visible? They're very messy. Um, they're obvious. They don't know how to hide them away like... You know, maybe we've all learned to hide them away. They haven't learned that yet, and so it's very clear. They're going to get the message very quickly. This is an organization for good people, and you're obviously not a good person, so you don't belong here. I mean, that's a serious thing, but churches adopt, and what the Bible tells us again and again is it's very easy for us to adopt that that is the mentality of what we are doing is we're the organization for good people. And I want us to look very carefully at these words from Jesus, where it's, Jesus shows us that his call to follow him is only to sinners. It is only to sinners. Okay, look at verse 10. And Jesus reclined a table in the house. Behold, tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. By the way, just a quick note. In Jesus' ministry, the way that he shows people that they can have be friends with God through him, they can be a part of God's family, is he eats a meal with them. If you want to show someone that they can have access into God's love through Jesus, eat a meal with them, okay? Eat a meal with them. But verse 11, And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Do you see that? You see what they're saying? We're the organization for good people. Why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? I don't, we don't have a category for this. If our mission statement is we're the group of good people, I, why, how would it fit in for you to be eating with these people? It doesn't fit in. It doesn't match up. And uh, we don't get it. They actually just literally, they can't understand this, how this even fits in. And um, Jesus, listen to Jesus' just mind-blowing words of grace as he challenges the self-righteous. Deep words of challenge to the self-righteous. Verse 12. But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. We are here because we're spiritually sick. We're not here because we're healthy and we're good. We're here because we're spiritually sick and we need the doctor, we need the physician to comfort us, to, uh, to heal us, to wash us. That's why we're here. 
Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And then he says this. this is, don't, don't miss this. Verse 13. Go and learn what this means. What Jesus is saying is what he's about to say that all of us need to go and meditate on. He says, I'm going to say this, and you're not going to understand it. And so you're going to have to think of it again and again, and when you come to church every Sunday, you're going to have to talk about it again and again. You're going to have to go, and you're going to have to learn, and you're going to have to study this hard, what I'm about to tell you. And uh, this is what he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Go and learn. Go and study. Go and meditate. Go and internalize this truth. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. What does Jesus want to think, us to think about this? Now, I just got to take a minute to talk about that little quote. You see how that's in quotes there. Uh, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That comes from the book of Hosea in the Old Testament. It's written 800 years uh, before Jesus came. And let me just tell you a little bit about the context of that verse. So in, in, uh, in, in Hosea, in the, the northern kingdom of Israel, it was a time of prosperity and a time of wealth. And, uh, and Hosea and all these wealthy religious people in the north um, were just dismissing and taking advantage of the weak and the needy. And God says to them, listen, you come to church and you bring these sacrifices and you do all these good things, and yet... Um, you're just walking all over people who are deeply in need of God's care and God's love through you. You're just walking all over them. I don't care about your sacrifices, your worship, and your religious duties. What I care about is mercy. And one of the things that we get, when we read that, he say, well, what is Jesus saying? He's saying God desires mercy and not sacrifice. So he's saying he desires us to be merciful? But that's actually not what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't say he desires us to be merciful. What does he say? For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That law, that command in Hosea to be merciful, Jesus says, I am the merciful one. I am the one who is inviting sinners to come. And the way for us to learn mercy is for us to come to him and say, I know that Jesus will only have me under these terms that I come to him as a sinner. And when we do that, our whole life, the note the, the, of our whole life, the defining word of our whole life is mercy. God has shown mercy to me, and now I can't help but show mercy to others. I can't help it, because that's all he's done for me. And so the question of the call is, do I see that? Do I see that my life is broken and that I need God's mercy? And when you find out that Jesus Christ comes and he says, I didn't call the righteous, I came sinners... And you realize that's you. That's why the call is irresistible. Who can say no to that? Who can say no to such love? How can we say it? And that's why we're here. It's because we, we couldn't. We couldn't say that love was so compelling. And it is that love and it is that mercy that must become the defining community that we are not the organization of good people. We're the organization, the church of Christ's mercy. May we be that. Um, by God's Spirit. Let's pray together. Our Father, I pray for those who are here who sense your call on their life. And I pray your Spirit would give them repentance and faith to know that Jesus is a friend to sinners. Would you wash us? 
And would you keep us from becoming the organization of good people to the community of sinners who have tasted the sweetness of the mercy of Christ? Would that mark us all of our lives and would we never stop singing of it all of our days? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.